And let's stand um, while we read this passage together, please. Acts 1, 1 through 11. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You may be seated. Thank you, Kim. Well, good morning. I can say Merry Christmas. Even if Greg says no, I can. Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes, uh, over the years, eight years now into this, um, God moves people in and out, um, and even knowing in this, uh, COVID season, if anything our world has learned is how valuable our relationships are, and the means by which we are presence with, present with one another, that love and affection towards one another is strengthened and increased, and, um, uh, so we hope much for you, Jackie, and we hope that uh, as you have been a blessing to us, that you'll be a blessing to those elsewhere as well. And, um, and for all of us, as we remember that, like, yeah, being together strengthens our love and our joy and, and increases our, man, and our weariness, the, the desperate need to have hope, um, knowing that by ourselves, life's just hard by ourselves, and the, the value of having that together is so, so help, hopeful and uh, to our advantage. One thing I've, one reason why I chose this passage is, I think for the Christian, there's this temptation at times, or maybe even from the world's perspective, is to look at Christmas merely in the historical perspective. Um, like, now what? Christ came, bore our sins, resurrected on the third day, ascended to the Father. And there's this temptation just to cut it off right there. But we know this, that Christians are not merely historical people. There's something that I find so interesting in this text that I have to remind myself regularly of. The disciples, the apostles, even after Christ resurrected 
from the, the grave. A significant accomplishment. Even after he paid for our sins, even after promising the Holy Spirit, even after all of those things, the apostles asked and hoped for more. And I have to remind myself that even within all the scriptures, especially within the Gospels and the book of Acts, Christ offered the forgiveness of sins and a kingdom. And so I have to remind myself, and that is my hope this morning, just to remind ourselves that, yes, Christ has come. We celebrated Christmas yesterday. The table sits before us to remember that Christ came to die for our sins, but then also Christians are not merely historical and we have something to hope for and that Christ is returning. I need to remind us, because we might read it when we read the Gospels, of what he offered. There's always this, this presentation of repentance. But even in when that presentation of repentance, he offers what's to come. So you read in Mark, Mark he starts up, he doesn't get into 14 verses before he presents this reality. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John had been taken into custody... Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. What's the good news? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The offering of what I'm going to do, my kingdom is near. What are you to do? Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus offered the means by which we can have a participation in a kingdom. Matthew 4, 17 after John the Baptist is taken into custody, Matthew records the same presentation. There's unity within the Gospels that Christ offers the opportunity to repentance for a kingdom that he will establish. From that time, verse 4, 17 or of chapter 4, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christians historically, and we reminded ourselves today that even while we celebrated yesterday, while we reflected and remembered what Christ accomplished, he's not done. He offered a kingdom. Um, Joseph, when he saw his wife pregnant, assumed that relationship is over, it's God who reveals to Joseph what he is going to do through this son. And God was gracious enough to also help Mary out and reveal to her what was going to be accomplished with this child. Luke, Gabriel reveals this, and you'll see in this revelation that Mary gets a little bit more up than Joseph does. In Luke chapter 1, 32 through 33, he will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus, yes, he did to come to die for our sins, but he came to establish a kingdom physically, and he offered it. And so when Jesus resurrected from the, from the grave, and the apostles bore witness of this, you, you can't miss it. In the first three verses of, of chapter one of Acts, uh, it's the intention of Luke that he encourages and reveals the, what Christ's intentions were. In verse 3, he said, to these apostles, he also presented himself alive. Why? You can't have a kingdom if you're not there. And the king has risen from the grave, and he is present with them, and he proved himself physically present with them. Uh, he adds on by saying, by giving many convincing proofs, touch me, put your hand in my side, give me some food to eat, testifying that there is one who has power over death. 
So to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, not just one occurrence, day after day after day, a king shows up showing his ability to present himself as one who can have a kingdom. And what did he do with those 40 days? Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. For me, if I'm not careful, while, we, while it is important to stress the atonement for our sin is to forget what he's promised us. He's promised us a kingdom, not just our sins being atoned for, just as significant that is that is. He has also presented us with a kingdom to come. There's a reason the apostles, after seeing 40 days of convincing proof that this one is the one who can establish a kingdom, ask this question in verse 6. Jesus doesn't rebuke them and say, no, what you believe is spiritual. The kingdom of God is spiritual. No, he doesn't do that. He rather, he corrects them in some ways. Look at what he, there's a reason why they ask this question in verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him and saying, Lord, is it at this time you? Are you or are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They hoped for it. And their hope was accurate. You're the one. As the promises have been revealed throughout all scripture, you're the one who is able to fulfill the promises of the kingdom of God. And so when we read the gospel, we see this layered throughout all the gospel. When we see Jesus after his resurrection, he testifies that his, he has the ability to establish these things. And so when they ask the question, this will be our point, first point, and I'm trying, I'm going to try to go as quick as I can to get to point three. And the problem is always I spend too much time in the previous ones, but um, if you can hold on, um, I think there's something convictional for us here to consider. They asked, is it at this time you? There was no question in their mind who was going to establish the kingdom. They saw it themselves. And I just want to remind you of what they saw and they bore witness of. When they saw Jesus go up on the mount uh, and do the mount of ser- uh, Sermon on the Mount, they witnessed a profound wisdom they have never heard or seen before. The scribes could not have or could even grapple with. Luke recounts that even as a child, his wisdom was so good that he baffled the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. He, he showed himself to be unique among all people. And so in Matthew 7, we remember this one who came, the reason why it is you that is going to establish a kingdom. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one having authority, as, a, as if it was his own, and not as their scribes. That's my paraphrase. Luke 24, even after his resurrection, goes on to have to clarify for the apostles of this incredible wisdom all scripture has pointed to me. I'm the one. And the disciples had come to know, is it at this time you? There was no question of who the you was who was supposed to establish the kingdom. For they had been taught. This is Luke 24, 44 through 47. Jesus was patient with them. And now he said to them, these are my words which I have spoken to you while I was still with you that all these things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it was written that the Christ would suffer. And we know this, right? This is what we, we remind ourselves around the table is that Christ died for our sins. And the means for that is that the innocent one suffer for our sake. That Christ would suffer and the promise was that he would rise again from the dead on the third day. 
And that repentance, and this is the transition for us, that we know that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. It was promised, and they say in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Acts, is it at this time you? There was no question on who the you was. Not only did they see his wisdom, but they also saw his ability. I always, it took me a while to understand that they saw his ability to establish the kingdom of God. Um, when you read the gospel, there's a reason why the miracles are all layered throughout the testimony and the story of Christ. I often have to ask myself, why are the miracles described? Well, it was promised. This is what the one who would do when he came to establish his kingdom. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Matthew tries to sum up all of this uh, ability of Christ in just the beginnings of his ministry. Just notice the emphasis of what Christ does as he just starts, Matthew 4, 23 through 24. Is it at this time you? They knew who the you was. It was specific because they knew he was profoundly wise and they knew that he has this unique authority and ability over all things to establish the kingdom. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee. This is Matthew 4, 23. Throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease, fulfilling those promises, and every kind of sickness among the people. Why would we trust you, Jesus? Not only are you wise and able to teach from our scriptures, but you're also the bore witness of his ability. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with the various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. When we read the Gospels, the reasons why the, the apostles, apostles asked, is it at this time you? They knew who the you was and what he could do. You can establish the kingdom. And the, he was the one who could promise hope even from the dead because there was prophecy said in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26, 19, even the dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is, all, is as the dew of the dawn. And the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So you see, Christians are not merely historical beings. Right? When Christ died for our sins, that is a pillar of our faith. But, I, but if that's all there is, what is there to hope for? And imagine from an outside world thinking, that Christians just merely live in the past of one event in time where there was a child that was, came to this earth. But that's not what the apostles hoped for. They acknowledged that reality and they preached that truth. And even after seeing the convincing proofs of Christ, is it now? Are you going to do it? We want the fulfillment. We want the kingdom. Because they knew who could establish it. I often wonder if that is now our hope. Right? Uh, making Christ merely historical and then grasping on to just the philosophy of Christ's teaching, loving thy neighbor. And that has now become the pillar of our hope. Those are good things. But if that is all that there is, man, there's not much hope for in the future. For the apostles hoped for more even in their own time. Is it at this time, you, are you going to do what we've all been hoping for? The kingdom. 
But the problem is, is we're going to see is God's perspective was that his kingdom was not just for Israel. Isaiah 45. The offer to the kingdom was not just to Israel, it was for the whole world. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. I will not turn back. And as it is promised, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say to me, only in the Lord are the righteous and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. Christ will come and establish a kingdom, not just for Israel, but for the whole world to enjoy. And that's what the gospel is. It wasn't just specific, just to Israel. And we've gone through Romans, and we're going through Romans. We'll be done someday. But we all know that, that the issue was for many, of the, the, how do we deal with these Gentiles? And the good news of the gospel was this. We get in by faith. And Christ, the disciples, hoping and longing, anticipating the physical position of the kingdom to enjoy forever, Christ, as he will see, we'll see here in a moment, is going to remind them of this. So when they ask, is it at this time you? There was no question on who the you was, right? Um, yeah, I just, I, I've talked about it in a general, but just let me give you one specific. You're not going to actually have this um, in, on the screens for you, but if you have Matthew chapter 8, one that uh, right, uh, stirred the mind of Martin Luther was Christ's authority, not just over the waves and the winds and the seas, but over the diseases, but even Christ throughout his ministry showed authority even over the supernatural world. And you see this, and I think this is why Matthew records and Luke demonstrate that there's nothing outside of his authority. And so when the apostles saw Jesus risen from the dead, there's no one else for the you to be filled up with but Christ. And even when they've seen it themselves in, in Matthew chapter 8, I'll start at verse 28. Luke records this account. Mark records this account. This man is possessed by demons. Nobody can control him. That's the point. Who is the you can, who can correct all things? When he came to the other side in the country of the Gardeans, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by them on the way. Like these, this situation, they were unable, no one could control them or hinder them from doing what they wanted. But when they saw the you, Christ, look at the response. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each of you, with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The apostles witnessed this. They saw this demonstrated to them. There's a reason why in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 they say, Lord, is it at time you? Right? Because they saw this. Nobody can control these. You have come here to torment us before the time. Verse 30. What's the time? They even, the demonic realm, even realized there will be a time when their time was over on earth where the kingdom would be established. The demons began to entreat him. Verse 31. Saying, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. 
In this account, why I like this account, with one single word, the mighty fortress is our God, with one single word, go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed out the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The apostles, Christians, are not merely historical beings because we know what God has offered us, a kingdom. We recognize the significance of God atoning for our sins, but we hope for more. This is what makes us unique, and this is what makes us so fascinated and so hopeful of the good news. It's not just for Israel, it's for all people who would believe. And so in light of this question, so we see Christ's response, point two, the response of Christ. Demonstrated his wisdom, his power, and his authority. They saw it all. Christ gave them many convincing proofs to persuade them. Verse 7, and he said to them, some of you need to underline this. I need to make sure it's underlined. Like, uh, we're always trying to figure out when, right? It's, we're always trying to figure out when is Christ coming back. And verse 7 will put a lot of publishers out of business, I think. Um, he said to them, it is not for you to know. The times of the epics which the Father has fixed by his authority. I had a class while I was at seminary. Uh, I can't remember what it was, a church history or something. And I don't know if you guys remembered in 2012, there was a man who had predicted the end of all things, the time. Right? And it so happened that the date fell on a day when I had a big assignment due. And you must walk by faith, right, uh, <laughs> in order for these things to be fulfilled. So I went up to, I think it was Dr. Bingham. I went up to, and I wasn't wise at that point. Dr. Bingham was kind of intimidating. But he um, said, uh, tomorrow, you know, the day is the guy of the prediction that Christ will return tomorrow. I said, nope. I said, I don't think I'm going to turn my assignment in <laughs> just to trust and wear these, these things so that it might be fulfilled. Uh, and uh, he didn't find it very humorous. <laughs> the reality is, is why is it? There was this saying that I heard often, whether it be in undergrad or in seminary, if you want to make money within the theolog theological realm, you write on eschatology. Depict the times, right? And Jesus, even to the apostles who knew that there was more to come, he said, that's not your responsibility. That's not for you to know. And so if you could hear the concern of my, from your pastor, show discernment. I don't care what color the moon might be. Yet there are things that should, could cause us to wonder and to marvel. I think these are, these are fine. But as to the time of his arrival, even the apostles were not promised. That's not your responsibility. Whose is it? What does Christ say? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the epics, which the Father it's the Father's responsibility to determine in His own wisdom when the kingdom is going to be established. And that responsibility is not our own. We recognize, even in our own families, I grew up in a wonderful family, wonderful family, and I had no idea how our family was doing financially. Why? Because that's not a child's responsibility. Things are short this week, no more candy. No, that's, my parents didn't do that. Why? Because the stewardship of the 
what we ate and lived and how we lived was not mine. It was my parents'. But in the same way, God the Father has determined the hour of when the kingdom will be established on earth. It's not wrong that the apostles understood who it was who was going to establish. But there's this slight correction. It's not for you to know. And so we're tempted just like, all, like you might be with me, like I might be as well, that when we see war, wars increase, oh, these are the signs of the end. We see pandemics become endless. These are the signs. Things are getting really bad. We're really close. The distraction is that that can become a distraction. And the responsibility when the Father is going to return is fixed by his own will. And it's not our responsibility to determine what the Father knows if it's he alone who knows. And this is this correction which Jesus um, reminds us of. And this is why I think the scriptures do teach us. Like, until I come to establish my kingdom, this is what you're going to see. In Matthew 24, you see this reminder. Verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Man, these things are supposed to increase our desire for the kingdom which he will establish. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place. <laughs> and look at this emphasis. But that is not the yet the end. Bummer. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and various places there will be famines and earthquake. Literally, the world will look like it's fallen apart. And then he said, verse 8, if we could just eliminate that, then publishers might have something to publish. But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pains. So it's not for you to know. But you know this, it's messed up, the world as it is right now. And we can hope for the kingdom. So then how we ought to respond. And I think that's why I wanted to labor in trying to get through point one and point two. In light of this reality, God the Father revealed to the Son what his beloved ought to do in the waiting. And I think this is where we can just consider what he does. Verse eight of Acts. Apostles. Well, let me start at verse 7. I'm sorry. Confuse the media team. It is not for you to know the times of the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, this is what you got to do. This is what your mind should be fixed. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the remote parts of the earth. Why? His kingdom is for the world. I say this often, maybe, maybe you don't get it, maybe you will one day. We're in Tri-Cities. Like the gospel made it here. God has been faithful to bring his gospel throughout the world, and you're the recipients of it. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up. While they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. What a moment. Like, in some ways, what they hoped for was now removed. Right, Because you can't have a kingdom without a king. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they, said, they also said, Man of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Christians are not merely historical for this very reason. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come. Why? Because he's promised a kingdom. In the same way as you have watched him go into heaven, 
I have stood on that mountain, Mount of Olives, where he ascended, and I thought to myself, this would be a good time. But he waits. And the promise is in the same way, in the same place that he is going to return. And as Christians, we recognize there are some things that often might distract us. The thing that which God wants us to be at the forefront of our memory, our mind, is to be faithful to the presentation and to the invitation to the world of this kingdom to come. Uh, it was in the early church. This is why Paul does it. This is why the apostles do it. You see the, the church fathers do this. They, as they go out into the world, they go into the nations and they go to the kings. Kings, there's a king with a kingdom. It's a good kingdom. He can eliminate sickness. He has the power to kick out the demonic realm. He has the means by which to renew every man's heart. But you must repent and receive him as your king. Why does Paul want to go to Nero? In fact, while he's in Caesarea, like, why does he appeal to Nero? Paul knew this. That God has asked even the kings of the nations to respond to him, for he is the king of kings. And it's not only just Paul and the apostles who follow this, I don't want to say tradition, but command this good news presentation to the world that this offer of a physical kingdom, which all can be enjoyed, is available for all people. We're not. Like, we're not merely historical. It's what makes us unique in the sense that we have more even now to hope for. The apostles were not wrong to ask, is it now the time you? Jesus' response was, not yet. You have something else to fulfill. And we now have been invited to respond as well through the faithfulness of those before us, which brings me to point three, our conviction. I think we did all right. The good news of the gospel is that it is for all people. Um, sometimes we can look at Christ dying for our sins, resurrection, believing in faith, we enter in baptism, and then we're wondering, now what? Right? We have something to do. Um, I think the best way, I think, to demonstrate this is even in Jesus' life, as people perceived him, he had to like remind them through parables, through teachings, that the not yet was not yet. Um, when Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem, the intensity increased. Where's the king rule? Jerusalem. Where is Christ who has demonstrated wisdom and power and authority going? Jerusalem. And then Jesus says, get the donkey. The place goes nuts. Why? Because the king is getting on his donkey. Because <laughs> this is what kings do. And so he stops for a moment in Luke and he teaches a parable, which I think is, in light of this season, incredibly convictional as we consider the table together. Luke 19, 11. I just want to walk through it and remind ourselves of the reward and what's at, what's at stake for people. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable why, why does he tell this parable? Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Matthew's account, when Jesus comes in on the donkey, it's like earthquake. People are freaking out, right? 
Why? Because the sick are going to get healed. Death is going to be eliminated. Like, we're, that, that's a party. And rightfully so. But he has to calm them down. He's going to try to do this through this, this parable. And so he said, A noble man went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. For those of us in Christ, we recognize this is what Christ is going to do. He has the means to establish it and invite. He received a kingdom for himself and then return. But in the meanwhile, he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minus and said to them, Minyas, and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. He saw the king, and there's rejection. Like, they don't want him. So often this is the case with Christ. Christ is offered to our loved ones and our friends, and they hear that he's a king of a kingdom, and they reject him. As we read through this, we're going to see what the reward is and what's at, what's at stake. Verse 15. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The king has expectations. And the first appeared saying, Master, you, your minnow has made ten minnows more. And he said to him, Well done good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. In light of my going to receive a kingdom and coming back, here is your reward. Well done. The phrase, that phrase, is what everyone who hopes in Christ longs for. Good and thou faithful servant. Like, you finished. My grandpa passed away little over a year, both my grandparents. And I know they will receive that, that word from the Lord. And I even long for myself, just, just finish. Finish faithful to receive this reward. Because when death hits, it's done. In the meanwhile, faithfulness is expected from the king. How I rejoice for those who finish. The second came in saying, verse 8, your minna master has made five. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. And another came saying, Master, here is your minna, which I have put away in your, in your handkerchief. What? what is he, why would you do that? For I was afraid of you because of you are an exacting man and you, t- you take up what you do not lay down and reap where, what you do not sow. So someone heard the gospel, did not know what to do with the gospel, and did nothing with it. Right, so we're going to see, I've already seen the reward for those who are faithful. Now one who is interacting with this reality that Christ is king, but yet unmoved with it, this steward. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am exacting man? Take up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow. Then why did you not put my money in the bank and have come, having come? I would have collected it with interest. Now, why is Jesus teaching this parable? He's teaching this parable because everybody around him thinks that he's going to establish the kingdom now. When he gets to Jerusalem, it's 
finalized. He's teaching the crowds. No. And through the means of a parable, which they'll understand later, he is leaving and will return to establish the kingdom. And he has expectations for how people will walk in the midst of the waiting. Verse 24. Then he said to the bystander, Take the minna away from him and give it to the one who has the ten. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already, and I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given more. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. So, we're not, we're, Christians are not merely historical, right? We have hope for a kingdom, but this hope for this kingdom, as, Paul, uh, as Luke is going to teach in Luke, and he's going to teach in here, there's expectation to do something with the time in the middle. Time in the middle, as Paul, uh, Luke is going to reveal, is we have a task to invite the world into the kingdom for when the, kingdom com- when the king comes to establish his kingdom. But what's at stake? So there's a re- We've already said that those who are faithful to do it and fulfill the commands of Christ have a, a faithful and wonderful reward, which is Christ in eternity and a stewardship to come into the kingdom to come. But those who do nothing, look at verse 27, and this is why we care, right? But these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Something is at eternally at cost. Right? The reason why we tell our loved ones about the king who's coming is because we know how the king will respond to those who do not respond to his kingship. He's going to slay them. And it's not just this account that says this. Second Thessalonians, let me remind you, of a church who is facing persecution and proclaiming the gospel and faithfulness. Verse 5, this is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. The kingdom to come is worth suffering for. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire. Now, now how, is God going to, how is Christ going to respond to those who reject the gospel? We've seen it in Luke. Paul's going to state it again in verse 8 in 2 Thessalonians here again. He's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Why are we so willing to put our relationships at risk by talking about the king? Because he's got a kingdom. And this king desires allegiance like every other king of the world. And it's a good kingdom, it's a good king. But for those who reject, and in that we pray and are trying to use the time that we are given with our loved ones strategically for eternity is at stake. And there's the tension that we live in. For we know, as the apostles hoped for, when the kingdom is established, every single citizen in it will know the king and submit to him. That's what's promised. 
But in the meanwhile, we invite the king. We invite those to respond to the king. And so we live in this tension. Christians are not merely historical. We have something to hope for, something to long for. God has been gracious enough to wait and wait and wait so everyone might hear and respond to the gospel. And so with great care, we watch our, how we live our own lives so that it might not persuade others not to follow Christ or respond to Christ. But then we use the time that we have with our words to plead with people as ambassadors of Christ, be reconciled to the king who atones for your sins. And we have to be reminded, and I remind you of this now only for the sake, you live in a world that says, don't do it. And they say, don't get political, but the gospel is political in the sense it's a king with a kingdom, with policy. And when he establishes policy, the enemies will be eliminated. And we care about our loved ones, that we plead, be reconciled with Christ. And this is why you will read in the book of Acts, in the life of Paul and the apostles, why they're willing to die to invite people graciously and humbly. It's not like we're trying to, to, to be God and to, to, to change their hearts, but we prayerfully and carefully use the time that we have with loved ones, friendships or employees or employers to bear much of Christ so they might respond. And here's the table. And we take the table remembering that those who participate in the table that Christ did offer, atonement for sin, but that it was not merely the all that we hoped for, we are also hopeful that he promised and that he will be king with a kingdom. And in the communion, which he presented to the apostles, he reminded them that he would not participate in taking it again until he returned. And when he returned, it will be the feast of the citizens who enjoy with him that which he has promised and witness it being fulfilled. So as I consider this with you myself, I want to close with this with 1 Corinthians as we prepare for the table. 15, 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Something has to change. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But hold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, when the Father, this is Jacob's paraphrase of light of Acts chapter 1, when the Father determines, when he says it's now, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will raise, be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And the kingdom of God, with its king, will be established. And that day will be glorious. And so in light of that, would you pray with me as we consider the table?